we are all in agreement that it is good to be together today. As we started with our brother Josh talking about how this is a wonderful place to be, both in terms of being with the Lord's people and being in the presence of God, and then singing these good songs and praying together and partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are truly blessed. I invite you to take a Bible if you'd like to follow along this morning. Uh, we're going to be camped out in one book, in one chapter, and in one verse. And we're going to very much stick with that one verse. And we'll go a couple of places outside of the book of Hebrews chapter 7. But if you want to open there, that's where we're going to spend most of our time together in our study together this morning. We pointed out that we have a number of visitors with us. And for that, we are indeed grateful. We appreciate so much the kindness that you've shown us by gracing us with your presence and by being an encouragement to us. Never doubt that just your presence, whether you are a visitor or you are a member, just simply being here is already an encouragement to each and every person that is sitting in your vicinity. But I invite you to take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to look at a verse there in our study together this morning. And I want us to think about the concept of power or powerful individuals. There are people in the world that if they even suggest something, the stock market goes up or down in dramatic fashion. You and I are not individuals that make those kinds of statements. No offense. And there are individuals who, if they get sick or if they have medical testing done and it's put on the world wide web and the whole world knows about it, financial markets and military provisions change in the world. That's not us either. But there are people in the world who are indeed very powerful. Sometimes we talk about the most powerful man in the world, referring to a leader of our country or other countries who perceive themselves as being maybe more powerful than what they really ought to perceive. But when we think about power, we need to think about Jesus Christ. His power is immense. It is undeniable. And it is uncomparable. We spoke about the lily of the valley and we sang nearer my God to thee, reminding us of the necessity of the great power that is found in Jesus Christ. And indeed the word that I've used this morning is profound. It's beyond comparison. There is profound power in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we come together on the Lord's day. It's not our day. It is his day. It's the day that we come together to think about him and to reflect on his power and to reflect on his sacrifice. And as Brother Brian pointed out just a few moments ago, to make that great proclamation that, yes, I believe in him. I believe that he lived and I believe that he still lives, that even after he died three days later, he was raised again. We all made that confession this morning when we partook of the bread and we drank of the cup. And it seems to me that one verse that really focuses in on this concept, maybe more than any other, is verse 25 of Hebrews chapter 7. 
had the opportunity to conclude a rather detailed study of the book of Hebrews where we spent maybe uh, a good 15 to 20 weeks with some brethren uh, via a Zoom call last year. And then as fate would have it, I suppose, another Zoom call launched in on a study of the book of Hebrews and we are spending another three to six months talking about Hebrews. And then just a couple of weeks ago, Brother Allen presented a very good sermon on a Sunday evening, and he made reference to this paragraph that contains Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And so I said to myself, well, if everyone else is talking about Hebrews over the course of the last 6 to 12 months, maybe we need to focus just on this one particular passage. And it says in verse 27, and a verse that may be highlighted or may be dog-eared in your Bible because of its familiarity, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We'll go back and develop the context here for just a moment or two, but I wanted just to read that one verse with which you are likely familiar. And I'm reading from the New King James Version, though we'll make some references to some alternative versions in our study together today. But I believe if we get nothing else out of this one single statement, This one sentence, this one verse, is that Jesus Christ is powerful, more so than the president of the United States, more so than the CEO of the biggest bank or biggest banks. He is powerful, and what he says matters, and what he did and what he does matters as well. And that's really the argument that I'm making this morning. And I want us to start with the word therefore. And so I subtitled this particular sermon, A Detailed Examination of Hebrews 7.25. And this will be a somewhat detailed examination where we're looking at almost every word or at least every couple of words in great detail. You know, there are a lot of great ways of studying the Bible. And you have your favorite ways of looking at various chapters or various themes or various verses, sometimes there are verses that are so chocked full with so much just in those 20 or 30 words that it's worth spending an extra 20 or 30 minutes just on that one particular passage. And that's what we're going to do in our study together today. It has been said that the word therefore in the Bible is there for a reason. It's there to point us to something that has happened and to something that is about to happen. The broader theme of Hebrews includes, or the broader themes of Hebrews, just as a quick review, includes a number of major points. And so I would argue that if you study the 13 chapters of Hebrews over the course of a quarter, which we have done and will do, Lord willing, in the coming years, and you don't walk away with these two or three big themes, you didn't study it very well because you got to get these big themes to appreciate the finer points. And one of those is that Jesus Christ is superior and is supreme to all things, all persons, all lawgivers, all angels, everything. And that's really the first third or so of the book of Hebrews. He's more powerful than anything. He is more important than anything. He is supreme. 
The other thing that really jumps out to me when I study the book of Hebrews is this need or the counsel on the part of the writer, whoever he was, to urge these Christians some 2,000 years ago not to give up on Christianity. You see, they were facing various forms of persecution and people making fun of them and people saying things that were not very kind. And some of these saints were saying, hey, if these bad things are happening in my life, maybe it's not worth me keeping up with this new regimen of, quote, Christianity or the way. And maybe I should go back to Judaism or go back to the former way of things. And then the third thing that jumps out to me when I think about the book of Hebrews from a more global point of view is the authenticity of Jesus as the priest, as the one who lives forever, who has a perpetual life and a perpetual priesthood and a permanent role in being that intercessor for us to borrow from Hebrews 7 verse 25. And in a larger point, that is the argument that's happening here in the last half of chapter 7, as well as the, the first half of chapter 8, it seems to me. And so if you go back just a couple of verses, in verse 18, we see here a transition from the old law to a new law that needs to be appreciated. It says, the law made nothing perfect, verse 19. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Go through and underline all the different betters in the book of Hebrews. It's another way of studying the book of Hebrews because it is a better system. It is a better covenant. It is a a better economy. It is a better way of doing things. And we ought not ever apologize for the fact that Jesus is better and he is best than everything and anything else because of his power, because of what he did, and because of what he does. Jesus is, if you drop down to verses 22, 23, and 24, the surety or the guarantee or the pledge of something that is far better. Jesus comes on the scene, and of course, he really uh, ruffles the feathers of the Jewish leaders of the early first century by saying things like we read back in Matthew chapter 27, when he proclaims to be the one, and they say he's committing blasphemy, and he's speaking blasphemous things, and he is being disrespectful to our God. And of course, none of that was true. And so, in verse 25, as a conclusion of all this, the word therefore is used. Or if you're reading from the ESV, the word consequently is used. So consequently, here's what we're talking about. And that's the rest of our study together today. There are seven or eight major phrases or words, at least as I count them, and I want us to talk about them, each of them, for maybe two to four minutes apiece. And the first of those is this, he It's only him, only one man, only one son, only one Lord, only one lily of the valley. He is a singular and a definitive term. And already we are saying things that in a broader either religious world or particularly in a non-religious world that is going to be bothersome to individuals. Who are you to tell me that there's only one God, one Lord, one Savior? Well, the Bible tells me that, and I believe it. 
Who are you to tell me that it was a man who was the son of God? The Bible tells me so. And so two things when we think about the singularity and the definitive nature of Jesus Christ is this. One, only Jesus Christ is sufficient enough to be the answer for all the problems that were found in the old law. Now, the old law was good. It did good things, but there is something that is better. That's not my choice of word. That's the Holy Spirit's choice of word in saying that something is better. Only he is the answer to the problems associated with it. And secondly, only Jesus Christ is enough to be the Savior of the world. Only him. He. When it says, therefore, he, it's talking about Jesus Christ because he's the only one. So I want to look at just three passages very quickly. One, which we may not look at because you could quote it, is in John 14 and in verse 6, where the text says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He does not say, I am a way, I am a uh, truth, I am a life. There would be a strong uh, issue with that if that was the rendering of John 14, verse 6. The, 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 three different times. And you and I know enough once we get through the third or fourth grade that there's a difference between the and a. One is definitive, one is not. And so he's saying, I'm the only way that you're going to have access to the Father. Some would say, well, that's being judgmental of you to suggest that there's only one way to God. I don't know that it's judgmental or not, but I'm telling you there's only one way to our creator, to our Father, and that is Jesus the Christ. Go back over to where our brother uh, Bain read for us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I want to just look at two little words there that are found uh, in that passage that he did a good job of reading. We can spend a lot of time on verses 13 through 16, but let's just spend maybe 60 seconds or so on the subject. He will manifest in his own time, verse 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The word that is used there is he's the only one. When there's something that is the only one that is there, it makes it very valuable, makes it very important. Verse 16, who alone has immortality, dwelling in this unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. This is is Jesus Christ. You know, if you wanted to study Jesus Christ, you could do so by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that's certainly a very valuable exercise to do. But you could also just look at the first word and the implications of Hebrews 7.25. He, he's the only one that is able to do what he is able to do. We'll talk about more about ability in just a moment. But then the word that is used is the word also. Also is a word that suggests, quote, in addition to, or a similarity, or a comparison of things. And so this is where an understanding of the Old Testament 
is somewhat helpful. And if you don't have the time to read Genesis to Malachi, read through the book of Hebrews and you'll get a pretty good view of the Old Testament, at least of the components that are necessary for this particular concept. But Jesus the Christ functions, serves, and provides in doing what priests did under the old law. What did priests do under the old law? They were the, they were the spokesmen for God. They were the in-between God and the man. Uh, you remember that the people we see would anxiously await outside of the temple or the tabernacle, wondering what the priest was going to say when he came out and wondering what he was going to do when he went in that one time of a year to the most holy of holy places. But we find where the first of key references to this is back in Exodus 19, verse 6, where we see not a reference to Jesus the Christ, of course, but we see to that of a priest. And it's interesting that we see the idea of a God-ordained priest before we actually get to chapter 20, which is probably one of the most familiar chapters in the book of Exodus because that's where we find the commandments of 10 that are listed I think it's also important for us to go back and look at the book of Leviticus, which we won't take the time to do today. You know, the book of Leviticus kind of gets a bad rap. Uh, it's, a, it's a lengthy book. Um, some would argue that it's a tedious book. It starts out with blood and it ends with blood. It starts out with sacrifice and it ends with sacrifice. But what's interesting is the concept or the mention of a priest is found over 150 times in the book of Leviticus. And almost all of those 150 instances is where he is the one who is administering the sacrifice. He's the one who's doing what Brother Bain talked about just a few weeks ago about the idea of the smells and the reactions and the sights and the sounds of what it must have been like when those priests and those individuals were bringing their animals to sacrifice and appease God. But the word also is there also to provide for us this stark contrast between the Old Testament priest and Jesus, the true, eternal, perpetual high priest. Go back and just kind of scan through chapter 7. Verse 11, down through, oh, where we have been reading. We won't read all 14 or 15 of those verses. But he says, if perfection were through the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, then what further need was there of another priest that he should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is of a necessity also a change in the law. Verse 14, it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. More on that in just a couple of moments. But there in chapter 7, verse 25, therefore, given everything we've said, he, Jesus Christ singular, is also, what is he able to do? He is able to save. Someone who's able to save is an important person. Having the ability to do something means one has the capacity to accomplish a job or to fulfill a mission. Jesus is the only one able to accomplish this task. No priest under the old law, no animal, regardless of how unblemished it was, could do this. Only Jesus is able to do this.
turn with me just maybe, oh, 15 or so pages over in your Bibles to the short little book of Jude. And there are a couple of things in the book of Jude that really jump out. One of which is verse 23, which we made reference to just briefly in one of our Bible classes that we pull people who are needing being saved out of the fire, hating even the garment that is defied by the flesh. But then in verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory and exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Only Jesus Christ is able to do that. So I'm going to say some things that are going to be very politically incorrect and things that maybe in 30 years could get me into big trouble. Buddha can't do this. Muhammad cannot do this. Following Judaism cannot do this. Being an atheist and trusting in the universe's power will not do this. And again, I, I, I understand I'm speaking to a largely friendly group of people who say, amen, I agree with that. But have you ever thought about the time when David and me and others who teach classes may not be able to say those things or at least say those things without getting ourselves into hot water? But those things are true because of what the Bible has to say. And so in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20, which we just studied about three weeks ago with uh, our uh, Sunday morning study, it says, we know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then verse 20, a favorite of so many who are present here this morning, to him who God alone Jesus Christ, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power, to him, verse 21, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And I couldn't help but think about a passage that sometimes we kind of overlook a little bit because it's tucked into a lengthy first chapter of the book of Luke. Do you ever look at Luke chapter 1, 80 Verses. That's a long chapter by New Testament standards. But in verse 37, with God, nothing will be impossible. Now, you could take that particular statement, maybe uh, go off in the left field or right field, depending on what field you're looking at, and make some applications that are inappropriate. But the point is, is that God is able to say, and there's nothing that stops him from saving you or saving me. And this is an important point in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it seems to me, to relay to those individuals with whom you come in contact who say, I'm too rotten to be saved. I've made too many mistakes. I've got so many regrets. You do not understand my past. God is able to save through Jesus Christ. And your past will not make it so. That he is unable to save. There's never been a person, and nor are there any individuals on the face of the earth today, seven to eight billion people, where God says, I can save you all, but you, mm, I can't make that happen. Just doesn't happen. Jesus Christ is able to save. If God is unable to save man through his plan, we are truly hopeless. 
And so he says here in Hebrews chapter 7, where we have been focusing our attention this morning, he says that he is also able to save. And then in the New King James Version, it says to the uttermost. Now, we don't use the word uttermost very often today. Uh, Those of you that are reading from the New American Standard, I believe you have the word forever. The idea here is completely or perfectly There is no such thing as partial salvation in Jesus Christ. No such thing as that. What I mean by that simply is this. A person does not come out of the waters of baptism and you look at them and say, well, they're 80% of the way there. No, they're 100% of the way there. Now, don't get me wrong. They've still got work to do. All of us are works in progress. But if a person who has had a very sordid background in his or her life says, I'm coming to Jesus. I believe he is the Christ. I'm changing my life. I'm going to be baptized for the remission of my sins and comes out of the watery grave of baptism. That person is saved by Jesus Christ. He is able to save to the uttermost forever, completely and perfectly. And so I want to look at just three passages, including a passage that we looked at just a few moments ago. One of those is in the book of Romans chapter 15 and verse 29. In Romans 15, near the end of this great epistle, he says, I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. He says, I'm going to come to you with the full blessing in the gospel of Christ. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Romans, and by virtue of that, he's talking to Christians that are surrounded and are at the very epicenter of an evil empire, which is about to get more evil over the course of the next couple hundred years, history would tell us. But he says, the full blessing of Jesus Christ comes to you, to paraphrase Romans 15. We already read from Ephesians where the same author writes and he says that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. And then in the next paragraph, he says, till we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to be what? A perfect or a complete man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Peter, thirdly and finally, would say in one of his letters in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, I want you to gird up the loins of your mind. I want you to be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The fullness that comes, the completeness that transpires, and the forever uttermost nature of salvation that is offered by Jesus Christ. Our Lord, to borrow from what a four-year-old would say, doesn't make you somewhat better. He makes you all better. I'm all good. I'm all better now. The band-aid is on. The problem is solved. And I am all good to go. I'm all better. And that's wonderful that that comes through Jesus Christ. And so we go back to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Again, we have to deal with something here that is politically incorrect, potentially. The ESV uses the phrase, draw near. And how fitting we sing. Nearer, my God, to thee. Help me to draw nearer to you. God already came to us by way of his son. 
We know that because that's what the gospel message is. John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, as John would say, in presenting Jesus on the introductory venue. God has already done all those things as found in the New Testament and prophesied in the Old. We must come to him in the same way, in the same venue, in the same type of uh, attitude of I want to do what you want me to do. And so in James chapter 4, a passage that you could quote, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is a responsibility that you and I have. Jesus, incidentally, in Matthew chapter 28, as we looked at just a week or two ago in one of David's sermons, has all the authority to make this possible. Jesus says, all authority has been granted or given to me in heaven and on earth. I am the one who is able, to borrow from earlier in Hebrews chapter 7.25, to make it so that those who come to God through me can have access to salvation. Jesus has all the authority. And let me suggest to you, going back to John chapter 14, verse 6, that we ought never, ever to apologize for this being the fact or the exclusive nature of Jesus Christ. Say, you interact with people in the world that don't believe in Jesus Christ, that are either atheists or they are of a different religion or they are not strong believers in the way that we are trying to be and hoping to be. And you say, well, I'm, I'm sorry for the way that I believe. No, I'm not sorry for the way that I believe. Never be sorry for this. I'm not saying be mean about it. But don't apologize for the exclusive nature of Jesus Christ that he's the only way to salvation. He is able. He's the only one that's able to do these things. And so if you go over just maybe a page in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, there's another therefore in the book of Hebrews, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us do what? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And so he says, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives. We sing songs about that, don't we? He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. We sing that. And we don't sing that because it's a catchy tune, though it is. We sing it because we believe he always lives. This cannot be said of another human being. Everybody that has gone before us has left this earth, either in mostly traditional matters. There have been a few that have gone up in a whirlwind, or one has gone up in a whirlwind, and one who was taken. Uh, But we understand that death is a universal concept and a universal experience. Hebrews chapter 9 will tell us that, as we'll look at here in just a moment or two at the conclusion of our study. But it's according to the order of Melchizedek. I recently had a study 
by way of Zoom with a brother who presented the mysterious case of Melchizedek. And it's one of the best studies of Melchizedek that I'd ever heard before. It was actually the author of the article that is in uh, today's bulletin. Uh, some of you would know who that individual is. doesn't matter, but if you go back to Hebrews chapter 7, I want to just look at just three or four verses here. It says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God remains a priest continually. My understanding is that Melchizedek did have a father. He did have a mother, but it wasn't recorded, which in that era and in that time would have been so spectacular that you can't trace his origin. Much like someone else who would come after. In verse 8, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. In verse 17, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Picking up on Psalm 110, one of the few references to Melchizedek outside of the book of Genesis. And in verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, severed from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those Old Testament high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You see, those are statements that are made about Jesus Christ that are exclusive to Jesus Christ. No man can have those things said about him. And so very quickly, we go back to passages like John chapter 8 and verse 56, another lengthy uh, chapter as it is divided in the New Testament, where it is recorded the following, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews complained, you are not even 50 years old. How in the world have you seen Abraham? Jesus says, most should I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Same idea as Hebrews chapter 7 going back to eternity. Indeed, throughout Colossians chapter 1 and 2 primarily, Jesus is preeminent over all things and before all things. And take the time to read all of John chapter 1 where it says that in the beginning, before the beginning, all time, Jesus Christ has existed. He always lives. That's the God that saves us and the God that we serve. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. We don't use the word intercession very often except in religious circles or church conversations or Bible study. It is literally the action of intervening on behalf of, of another. Uh, Sometimes we use the word intervention. (laughs) We say he needs an intervention or she needs an intervention, needs someone to come in and help that person out. That same idea is found in intercession. And so in Romans chapter 8 and in verse 34 at the middle of that letter, Paul says, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, it is Christ who is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who's making intercession for us today? It's not Muhammad. It's not Buddha. It's not some spirit in the sky. It's not the stars. It's not the moon. It's not the cosmic whatever. It is Jesus Christ, and only he has the ability to do that.
There back in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands physically, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Why is he doing that? To make intercession, to make intervention, to be there for us. So consider just very briefly here three very simple facts, which we kind of highlighted in our Bible class this morning. Fact number one is we've all sinned. We know that from passages like Romans 3. Not a single one of us who is able to digest this information and old enough to process this uh, can say, well, I've never made a mistake. I've never sinned. I've never transgressed God's law. I've never done anything evil. We know as, as much as we don't like to admit it, yeah, that's me. I've done it. Two, sin separates us from God, a point that was accurately and appropriately made in our Bible class this morning. And three, Jesus is the only way for reconciliation. I know that because Paul would say, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through who? Who do we rejoice through? What makes it so that we're able to rejoice? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, some would argue the intercession or the intervention. Jesus looks at us and when on the cross says, these people, they need intervention. They need help. And I'm the only way that can help them. And God the Father says, yes, that is indeed true. And so that's where we get back to Hebrews 7 and verse 25, that he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to him in verse 25, since he always lives to make intercession. And then those last two words should be comforting for you and me. And that is, he says, for them. I think it's important that we take a look back that it's those who come to God back in the previous verses in chapter 7. Consider for a moment who you are and who we are. And this actually goes very well with a couple of sermons that David has most recently presented in talking about who we are as God's children. Because you and I are sons and daughters of the King Most High. We are citizens of that kingdom. We are, as we've talked about recently, we are saints. And we are, thirdly, disciples of Jesus Christ. When it says in verse 25, he's going to make intercession and makes intercession for them. If you want to write your name out in the margin of your Bible, have at it. Because Jesus Christ makes intercession for you and for me. And if it's not for him, we are hopeless And we are doomed. We read on Wednesday evening, I think it was, in Mark 16, 16, where it says, He that believes and is baptized will be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned. Remember the King James Version word? It's not a a bad word when it's used this way. But he that does not believe will be damned. That's a strong word. And Jesus says, I don't want that. So I'll live for you, I'll die for you, and I'll live for you again. Only Jesus is able to do that. Make it personal. We sing, Jesus loves me. 
Yes, he does, because he died and lives to make intercession for us. Let me conclude with this one final thought, and I appreciate your kind attention so very much this morning. When Jesus died for you, and when Jesus died for me, he had us on his mind. Now, I'm not about to say what, exactly what was going on. Some might say, well, Jesus was, he had the capacity to think about 50 billion names. At the same, I, I don't know. But he had humanity on his mind. That I believe. And he knew his mission. We need to thinking about all that he does for us and given the fact that his power is indeed to the uttermost and profound, ask the question, do we have Jesus on our minds? And the world would say, yeah, have him on your mind from time to time and that's good enough. But we must have him on our mind constantly or as the New American Standard would say later in the same book, fix your eyes on Jesus Make it so that you are focused on him and that your mind is on the Savior because he's the only one that is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through him because he makes the intercession for you and for me. And those are the thoughts that I have this morning and I hope that it's been encouraging to you. This study has been encouraging to me over the last couple of weeks in preparing for it. And I hope that perhaps that those that are not Christians that are present or listening this morning would say it's time for me to make a change because I don't want to be condemned. I don't want to be further separated from my God. And I want Jesus to make that intercession for me. And we welcome the opportunity to baptize you today or to study with you further toward that goal. If as a child of God, you need to make a correction and you need to make a change, you need to repent and you need to confess. And it's something that we can help you with because we are people that are not perfect, but are imperfect people that serve a perfect God that are there to help you grow in a more perfect fashion. We are there to pray for you. And we have a hundred and some people this morning that would be ready to do so because we love you. If we can help you in any way, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.